What is good, everybody? Okay, we're just gonna we're gonna get straight into this because we got a lot to cover. We got a lot content-wise. I wouldn't say uh, verse-wise. <laughs> we don't have a lot to cover. Uh, if you're new here, one thing that you'll learn is that we can spend a long time talking about a very small amount of verses in the Bible. But hey, it's okay because as you study and read the Bible more you realize how connected it all is. That's something I've really learned this year is that almost every single page of the Bible has very deep and purposeful meaning, especially in the Old Testament. Very deep and and intentional meaning. And unfortunately, we can miss that if we're just reading on through a page, you know, going through a chapter a day, we can really miss how deep and how connected and how intentional the authors really made this amazing piece of not just divinely inspired word from God, but it it is art. The Bible is literary genius. It's literary art. But we're going to hop straight into this because we're going to go on some rabbit trails today over one verse. And we're going to be talking about Romans 15, verse 16. I promise we're going to get through Romans. (laughs) One day we will get through Romans. (laughs) But we're going to hop into verse 16. I'm going to read part of verse 15 going into 16. And then we'll go ahead and break it down. Paul says, Because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So I've mentioned a few times that Paul was sent to preach to the Gentiles. And this is important because as we talked about in some of the last few episodes, the Old Testament being a Jewish text written by Jews Um, at the time written for Jews, it it was still very clear that God's ultimate plan included all people. It included the nations, the Gentiles, all people. It wasn't just specific to Jewish descendants that were going to be able to partake of this wonderful creation that God made and the wonderful plans that God has. It was including all the nations. And if we remember, Jesus came directly to the Jews to present himself as the promised Messiah. We talked about that last episode. But his sacrifice was not limited only to the Jews. It was meant for any and all who would accept it, every single person. So in order for non-Jewish people, for Gentiles, to learn about Jesus and to receive this sacrifice that Jesus did for all people, there had to be people that would be sent out to teach Gentiles about what Jesus did and what what they had the opportunity of obtaining, which was an everlasting, loving relationship and salvation with their Creator. And this became Paul's ultimate purpose. And we see this in Acts chapter 9, and this is the story of Paul on the road to Damascus. This is Paul's calling, basically. And in Acts chapter 9, in verse 13 through 15, uh, before this, God is speaking to Ananias. And he basically says, hey, yo, Annie, what's up, dude? Uh, you know that dude, Saul of Tarsus? <laughs> you know him? Well, my glory was so lit. I was just trying to say hi to the brother, but it was so lit that it blinded him and He's now waiting on you to help him see again. And in verse 13, Ananias answers this and says, 
Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Paul, originally being a terrible, evil Pharisee who was persecuting anybody who claimed to be a follower of Christ, this same Paul had an encounter with Jesus himself and was blinded And God is telling Ananias, hey, there's going to be this guy, Saul of Tarsus, right? And Ananias is like, uh, hold up, God. You know who you're talking about, right? Like, he's been killing my kind. He's been throwing us in jail because we serve you. But God says to him, Saul is my chosen instrument. And what I'm needing him to do is not just give the good news and the gospel to, you know, my, my people, my chosen people of Israel. But he also is going to give this gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul, ultimately, as we know, embodies his calling to the fullest. And here Paul is explaining to the Roman church his purpose, namely to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. And Paul does this so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. Now, this is what we're really going to be focusing on today. The offering of the Gentiles and the importance of it being acceptable. And the first thing we may think of when it comes to an offering or a sacrifice is, uh, is the offering or sacrifice within the context of the temple. And I want, to, I want to take a moment to point out how the Gentiles' experience of the Jewish temple was drastically different than how the Jewish experience of the Jewish temple was. The importance of the temple in Jewish culture alongside its sacrifices is that these sacrifices that were made could be brought to God in order to atone for sin. And the Jewish high priest could go into the Holy of Holy and all the Jews could be right outside of the Holy of Holies in the the next layer of the temple court. And they could converse and they could worship. They could truly partake in the full experience of the temple. The temple was a sacred space. But however, for the Gentiles, this was not their experience. The Gentiles would have been restrained to the outermost court of the temple, mostly because they would have been seen in the same light as those who were impure, whether impure of sin or physical deformity or sickness or disease. Uh, GotQuestions.com says this regarding the Jewish or the Gentile experience in the Jewish temple. Quote, non-Jews were allowed to enter the court of the Gentiles, but they were forbidden to go any farther than the outer court. The inner temple courtyards were enclosed by a balustrade, and at the entrances to it, notices were posted in both Greek and Latin, warning foreigners and uncircumcised persons that crossing into one of the other courtyards was punishable by death. End quote. So, so knowing this and knowing that the Gentiles were purposely excluded, purposely locked out, if you will, of the, the temple experience to be able to experience God 
to worship and to offer sacrifices in a meaningful way. Knowing this brings another powerful element to the importance of Jesus fulfilling and replacing all that the temple did and all that the temple didn't do and couldn't do. This is why in John chapter 2, verse 19, when Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's why it's so important. Because the temple did serve as a way for Israel to atone for sins and to worship. But it also served as a symbol of exclusion for all Gentiles from a true and powerful interaction, relationship, and experience with God. And what was once exclusionary, that was bound by a physical structure, the temple, has now become an inclusionary place that is not bound by a physical building because it's found in Jesus. Jesus is now that temple. And this means for the Gentiles that they no longer have to sit in the outer court with the impure but they can now fully participate in the act of worship and sacrifice. But Paul makes this very clear a few chapters earlier that this time the sacrifice is is no longer going to be of animals and of death. It's a sacrifice of themselves in servitude to the ultimate high priest, which is Jesus Christ. And this is the exact thought process that Paul had in Romans chapter 12, In verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The same type of language that happened in the temple, sacrifice, worship, bringing an offering that's acceptable to God, no longer is bound by the physical temple, but is now found in our relationship and our servitude to Christ. And we're getting a bigger picture now of Paul's purpose in preaching to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, because of the sacrifice that Jesus made, now have an opportunity to fully participate in worship and in sacrifice. But this doesn't mean that they can just go at it willy-nilly. They need guidance. They need structure. Because this is new to them. They didn't grow up with the Old Testament. They didn't grow up with this example of Yahweh and understanding his morality and understanding the Ten Commandments and and being completely engulfed in the reality that the Jewish people did growing up. The Gentiles, this is all new to them. So you, you can't just say, hey, Jesus is now your Lord, now serve him without telling them how to serve him. Because Yahweh, in serving Yahweh and following the example that Yahweh set forth in the Old Testament was far different than how pagan Gentiles would serve their gods and all these other deities that they worshipped. So they need guidance and structure. They need to know the correct gospel and the proper way to live so that their sacrifice of their life and their servitude can be the best that it can possibly be. And as Paul said, he is being this guide. He's being this structure so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. We we have to acknowledge that anybody can present an offering. Anybody can just present any old offering. But the creator of all life, the savior of the world, 
doesn't deserve and also won't just accept any old offering. And this is what Paul is striving to push the Gentiles towards, is an offering that's acceptable. And I wonder if Paul had Genesis 4 on his mind, if Paul had the story of Cain and Abel on his mind when he's highlighting the importance of an acceptable offering. I feel like he had to have had this on his mind to some degree because the first thing I thought of when I was reading this and I heard Paul highlight acceptable offering, the first thing I thought of was Cain and Abel. And there's no way that Paul at least didn't have this on his mind a little bit. So I want to go over this Cain and Abel story real quick because it actually has many profound and important implications for the Roman people that Paul is writing to and for us as well in ensuring that our offering to God, which is ourselves and our lives, is acceptable. So let's read through this. Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Dude, there is so many cool things that we could talk about in just these three verses. So many cool things. I'm going I'm to try my hardest to not rabbit trail us too much. Oh man. Should I? No. Okay. Okay. For sake of staying on topic, we'll, we'll save some of this really cool stuff for, for another time, but there is some things that we can dive into here. Uh, we, we all know the Cain and Abel story and typically the, the focus that I've always heard the most is on what God rejected and why God rejected the offering. Every time I hear someone when preach about this or highlight this, they always try and figure out why God rejected the offering. Like, what did Cain offer? Like, what was wrong with Cain? Like, oh, well, Abel offered a sheep and Cain just offered grain and grain is worse than sheep. And, you know, that that's that's an argument for a whole nother time. But I, I think we make the mistake sometimes of focusing too much on why the offering was found unacceptable and rejected. But I want to focus on the potential consequences for an unacceptable offering. I want to focus on the the response of the rejected offering and the choice that God gives us when an offering is rejected. Because we're not told why Cain's offering was rejected. And honestly, in my opinion, it it doesn't matter because God has the right to choose, accept, and reject whatever he pleases. But regardless, God informs Cain about what is waiting for him on the other side of rejection. He has the option to, as it says in the ESV translation, to do well or not to do well. Uh, But if we look in the Hebrew, it would be to do good or not to do good. So the potential to do good or not to do good, is something that we shouldn't overlook, especially taking into account what has already happened so far 
in these first three chapters in the first book of the Bible. Because at this point in the biblical narrative, the choice between doing good and doing not good has had drastic consequences. As we see in Genesis 1, God in Genesis 1 looked at all he created and he called it good. This is actually a cool little study. Go through Genesis 1 and look at all the times that God said that things were good. And and notice that God is the one defining good. And another, the, the Hebrew word for good is tov, and this will be important. So God saw what he created in Genesis 1, and he saw that it was tov. It was good. So the narrative of Genesis 1 paints God as the ultimate decider of what is tov, what is good. But the first time in the narrative that somebody other than God decides that something is good is Eve, when she sees the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She, she sees the tree and she saw that it was tove to eat. The fruit was tove to eat. It was good to eat. And because of that decision, because Eve decided to, to decide what was good instead of trusting God to decide what was good, Adam and Eve were given over to their sin. So taking this, this portrait so far of what is tove and who defines what is tove, who defines what is good, we see very quickly that, oh, when humans decide to do what is tove or what is good in their eyes, it seems to be that bad things follow. When humans decide to disregard what God says is good, and decide what is good for themselves, sin follows, bad things follows. So keeping this in mind, as we read through the next few chapters, the very next time that the word tov is used, or a derivative of it, the very next time we see that someone has the opportunity to either decide for themselves what is good, or in the future decide to do what is good, is here in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Cain has this opportunity. So Cain's sacrifice is deemed unacceptable by God. And because of this, Cain now has a future choice. God lays this out for him. He says, you have the choice to either do good or not do good. Guys, this this is so cool. Okay, so Eve's choice of defining good or defining tov for herself, that was a choice in the present. She saw that the fruit of the tree was good. And in that moment, she took and defined good for herself. But here in Cain's situation, we're told that Cain has a future choice to do good or to not do good. And what God does is he defines for Cain what is good. He says, if you do good, will you not be accepted? Similar to how God defines what is good in the garden. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God here is giving Cain the option. If you do good, will you not be accepted? Now, the narrative doesn't tell us what necessarily is good. But clearly Cain knows 
God is speaking to Cain in a way that Cain knows what is good and he knows what is not good. So let's take a quick note of what the authors are doing here in the first four chapters of Genesis. The, the, the theme of choosing good and who is choosing good and doing good, it is connected. It, it's supposed to call us to look back on what Adam and Eve did in their choice of defining good. And we're supposed to now look at Cain and go, oh, Cain, you have the same exact choice that your parents did. Are you going to accept God's definition of good and evil? Or are you going to replay the actions of your parents by defining good on your own terms? By doing good or not good on your own terms? And this choice is crucial because by defining good on Cain's own terms, God warns him that sin is crouching at the door and that its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So sin here is being depicted not as some abstract moral blot or stain on your record, but sin is being depicted as an animal. It's said to be crouching at the door. And that right there, that, that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. But this animal that is crouching at the door, it will go against you. And if you want to avoid its attack, you must rule over it. Rule over it. This is, this is some more repetition that the author is pointing out. It's the exact same wording that God commands humanity to do to the animals in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 28, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What God is doing here when he's speaking to Cain is he's reminding him of his purpose, his command, which is to rule over this animal, to rule over the animals on this earth. God, God is saying, why, why would you allow sin to overtake you when you not only have the power, but you have the purpose and the command to rule over this animal? This is so clever of the author to use this animal imagery in regards to sin and tie it back to humanity's command to rule the animals in Genesis 1. And of course, as we know, Cain does not rule over this animal. He does not rule over sin like he was created to do. Rather, he allowed the animal to rule over him. And even this is a tieback to how Adam and Eve allowed an animal, the snake, to rule over them instead of them ruling over the animal. Dude, oh my gosh, there is so much that, that could be said here. There's so much more that could be said. But dude, the Bible is so cool. I am so excited to get into our Genesis series because the first like 20 chapters of Genesis is just jam-packed with this repetition and this wordplay and these themes on good and evil and humans taking and giving. Oh my goodness. Okay, I need to calm down. But okay, I point out this story of Cain to show how important it is for an offering to be acceptable to God. Because with rejection comes the potential to allow sin and anger to rule over you. 
this has far-reaching implications for the Gentiles. And this is why I think that Paul, to some degree, had the story of Cain and Abel and what God said to Cain in his mind. Because they are living in a time and a place where their profession of faith could completely ruin their lives. It could cause them to be ousted from social circles. It could cause them to be kicked out of their land, tortured, persecuted, thrown in jail, and even killed. And Paul wants to ensure that the faith they possess and the sacrifice they lay forth to God is one that is fully acceptable. But if they fail to be acceptable, the Cain and Abel narrative still reminds us that doing not good or following sin is still an option following rejection. And this is why Paul reminds them earlier on that we are now dead to sin. So, so the, the problem that Cain had where he had the choice of either doing good or not doing good because if he does bad Sin is waiting there to destroy him, and its desire is contrary to him. Paul, Paul reminds them a few chapters earlier here that they don't have to worry about that anymore. Because if you follow Christ, you're dead to sin. That thing that was crouching at the door, that animal that wanted to usurp your authority and rule over you, you're dead to that now. It has no rule over you. It has no power over you. Because we're born again in Christ. Because Christ is the one that fulfilled humanity's original creation role, which was to rule over the animals. And sin being depicted as an animal in Genesis 4 reminds us that Christ ruled over sin. And Paul is equipping the Roman church. And by extension, he's equipping us with everything we need to avoid replaying the choices of Cain when his offering was rejected. All of this is, is packed into this one verse. The importance of how we respond to rejection, but more importantly for Paul, the importance of knowing how to present yourself as a worthy and acceptable sacrifice and offering so you don't even have to worry about the rejection. Dude, the Bible is so cool. I'll see y'all next week.